welcome to the weekly chapter by chapter recap uh, that goes along with Bible Discovery and Bible Discovery TV. We are reading through the Bible, the entire Bible this year. And our assigned reading this week was Judges chapter 10 to 1 Samuel chapter 12. So I'm here and my husband is here. My name's Corey, if you don't know, and my husband's name is Matlock. And we are going to get you caught up on your Bible reading if you've fallen behind or if you just want to test your knowledge good too, right? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay, so let's go over all of the weird and interesting and tragic history that we read about this week. <laughs> yeah. Like, there, there's a lot in there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's weird. It's interesting. It's yeah, tragic. That's right. So, Judges chapter 10. So, we're smack dab in the time period of the judges, and right away we hear about two judges that we're not given a terrible amount of information about. So, the first one is Tola, and we're just told that he saves Israel and that his his rule uh, lasted for 23 years. Uh, and that saving of Israel would have been from uh, some sort of enemy nation. Right. Uh, then we have Jer, and we're told that he ruled Israel for 22 years, and he had 30 sons that rode on 30 donkeys that controlled 30 towns <laughs> in Gilead. So what that is telling us is that um, that there is a sort of push for kingship that's going on with these leaders because kings in that area of the world at that time period, they rode on donkeys. So the fact that Jer, he would have had multiple wives to have 30 sons uh, and that they all rode on donkeys gives them this kingly royal presence and that they were ruling in 30 different towns in Gilead. So he was creating uh, sort of a, a, a dynasty or trying to create a dynasty. It clearly didn't last long because it died with him, apparently. So there's this idea that these leaders, some of these judges, are trying to consolidate power through families, through their family lineage. Um, and this isn't the first time that that's happened, but it is interesting that it's being mentioned more and more. So then, also still in Judges chapter 10, we start the story of Jephthah. Jephthah. Oh my goodness. This story is full of irony and tragedy. So we learn that the Philistines and the Ammonite, the Amorites were oppressing Israel for 18 years. So there's these two different people groups and, and they're both creating problems. Now, this prompts Israel to seek God, uh, presumably through priests and sacrifices. The tent tabernacle is still operating at this point. We know there's a few high places that are operating at this point. And God responds to them, again, presumably through the priests, that, you know, Israel's chosen other gods, so why not ask those gods for help? There's a little bit of a cheeky response yeah. from and, God here. And this is part of the whole, we read in Judges 2, this is the big snare mm -hmm. that God sets them out for. So because God says, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. Snare mm -hmm. is like a trap. So yeah. idolatry is a trap here that's luring, draws you in, and then, you know, creates a cyclical cycle that we're kind of in here. Yeah. And this oppression yeah. and then them having to repent. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's good. So so God's like, why don't you just go ask all your other gods, which of course they have been doing it. It hasn't been working. So what's interesting here is that Israel repents and they actually get rid of their idols. And this causes God to move on their behalf. It, right. Basically, it, it says like God couldn't ignore, the, ignore them any longer. Um, so we've got 
um, the Ammonites then, they move in, their military moves in, and they camp at the city of Gilead and the territory of Gilead. And the Israelites camp at the city of Mizpah. And they start looking for a leader who's going to, to kind of lead the charge in battle against the Ammonites. So then this continues on now to Judges chapter 11. So enter Jephthah, who's going to become the next judge of Israel. We learn that Jephthah was an illimited, an illegitimate child of his father through a prostitute and that he had been driven away by the legitimate sons mm. of his father through the, um, the, the father's wife. In Jephthah's exile, he became really well known for his skills as a fighter and we're told that all of these ruffians and men of ill repute and anyone who was cast out of their society joined around Jephthah. So he had sort of a personal army anyway. Uh, so the leaders of Gilead, his hometown that he had been kicked out of and that was currently being surrounded by the Ammonite army, they called to Jephthah. They send a messenger to Jephthah to become their leader. And as a result, he becomes the commander of Gilead and the ruler of Israel. So he goes to Mizpah where the Israelites are camped out and before the Lord, because there's a high place there, an important high place, they make vows before God. So Jephthah then sends a, mess a message to the king of the Ammonites. And really interestingly, this message is full of technical errors. For example, Jephthah calls the god of the Ammonites Chemosh, but that's not the god of the Ammonites. The Ammonite chief god is Molech, also called Milcom, uh, and that's going to become important after. So Jephthah makes a really dumb and ironic vow to God at this point because he wants to win the battle. Um, he says, you know, God, if you, if, you give, if you empower me to win this battle, the first thing that comes out of my door when I come home, the first thing that greets me will be, I'll give to you as a burnt offering. He was probably thinking this is going to be one of the animals because animals commonly lived in the main floor of Israelite homes. Uh, but there was a very high chance that it was going to be a person, right, right. who lived in his household. And of course, we learn later that it was his daughter who came out of the door to greet him. Yeah. Now, the reason this is so ironic is because Molech, the god of the Ammonites that he was currently trying to defeat, mm -hmm. Molech was a god of human sacrifice and specifically child sacrifice. So Jephthah was actually mimicking the worship practices of the very people that he was trying to defeat. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And God does not accept human sacrifices. So this this is just the author really drives this home for us using this irony of Jephthah. Not like yeah. misquoting oh, who the God is and then and then bringing it back in. And it really drives home that point for us that when we don't know God, we can make really tragic mistakes in how we serve him. So what it does is it really shows here that like when we're doing things in our own eyes, how you can't even see your own hypocrisy. Yeah. Right. Which is the irony, which is, which is how God uses irony to judge. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like th when you realize, wow, what have I done? I basically know better than the people I just defeated. Yeah. You come to that conclusion. Then there's, a, there is a point where of repentance, but some people can't even see that. Mm -hmm. That's so deeply entrenched there in their own hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. And that's, what's, you know, scary about God's judgment because uh, he uses irony, but it's also a mercy because that gives you a time to acknowledge and repent, mm -hmm. you know, depending if you're willing to or not. Anyways. No, completely. Yeah. And and Jephthah could have done that. Yes. He could have repented. He could have 
um, stopped that vow to God. Because if he had known the law of Moses, if he had known God, um, he would have known that he could have redeemed his daughter with a monetary offering yes. to the tent tabernacle. That's he could right. have just paid a redeeming price for her. Right. And that would have been acceptable to God, but a human sacrifice was not. So this is just an example of how badly Israel had become. Not even the leaders knew who God was or what was acceptable right. or unacceptable to him. Yeah. Brutal. Brutal. So really mixing in pagan worship practices in with God. Okay, so <laughs> Judges chapter 12, um, the tribe of Ephraim threatens to kill Jephthah for not including them in the battle against the Ammonites, and the, possibly for the money. Battle was a really lucrative thing, right? The um, armies who, the successful armies, the, the conquerors were able to loot and raid. That was just kind of a thing that happened. Um, so maybe that's why they were so angry, but Ephraim ends up being beaten really badly um, because there's a, this civil war between Ephraim and Israel. And uh, they end up, the Ephraimite men end up being just killed indiscriminately by the men of Gilead. So it turns into this awful slaughter. And again, we see um, Israel being destroyed by their own sinful actions. Uh, we see the Spirit of God empowered Jephthah for war, but it was his own mouth and his own right. lack of knowledge about God's law that guaranteed the destruction of his own house, his only child. What is more of a trap than not being able to acknowledge your own, your own hypocrisy? Yeah. That is like yeah, your own sin. Yeah, your you're just you're your you're in a cycle. You can't even see yep. that there's no way out. There's no vantage point mm -hmm. to give you. You will just see the evil that you're doing, and so that's what they're. It's literally it's a snare to them. Oh, and yeah, this idolatry. Completely. You can see this happening. Yeah, it's you see it. The author really drives it drives it home in the stories that he chooses to tell here. We're seeing that over and over. Right. And I mean the the the. The thickness of the irony in Jephthah's life is wild. Yeah. So even with, with the tribe of Ephraim's greed and their want of valor, it highlights Jephthah's plight because Ephraim, you know, they're like, Jephthah, we're going to burn your own house down over your head. But Jephthah's already done that. Right. He's, he's literally just killed his only child. Yeah. His house, his name yeah. is gone. It's going to die with him. He's already done that himself. And then Ephraim's uh, greed gets them viciously, viciously beaten yeah. in battle and then you know picked off yeah. as they try to escape. So we just see this state of Israel when they turn from God. It's just chaos and death. Yeah. All right, so in the very end of Judges chapter 12, we get told about three more judges. Ibzen, uh, who ruled for seven years, and we see, again, more attempted kingship. We see him having many sons and daughters, but this time, Ibzen takes it a step further. His daughters are married outside of his clan, so this tells us that they are being used to secure treaties, peace treaties, and allyships with other clans and nations. So he's mm. really trying to spread out the kingship wings here and fly. Right. Uh, but apparently it doesn't work because then we have the, the next judge is Elon, and he rules for 10 years, and then Abdon, who rules for eight years. And again, we see him trying to to be sort of a king because his family reigns were basically for three generations. We're told that he has 40 sons and then 30 grandsons mm. who rode on donkeys. Again, this symbol of kingship. So they have right. power as well. 
Okay. <laughs> Judges chapter. There's a lot. There's, there's a, a lot, lot of history. <laughs> I'm trying to give each one the justice it deserves, <laughs> but also move forward. <laughs> How ironic. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Okay. Judges chapter 13. This is where ever so famous Samson is born. So we learned that the Philistines had been oppressing Israel for 40 years. And then the angel of the Lord uh, appears to a woman who will be Samson's mother, a woman who is barren. And the angel of the Lord promises a child to her. And this child needs to be a Nazarite. So this story, just even in this, we learn... Um, the apostasy of Israel, because the the angel of the Lord has to explain to this mother that she's not, she cannot eat anything unclean now. Right. But no Israelite should have been eating anything unclean. They right. all that wasn't even a Nazarite thing. That was just an Israelite thing. If you're following the <laughs> right. law of Moses, you don't eat anything unclean. Yeah. So he gives her the law of the Nazarite, and then he's like, "Oh, and don't eat anything unclean yeah. anymore." And it's like, okay, they're not even following yeah. the dietary laws. Okay, so then there's this really interesting encounter between the husband and the wife and the angel of the Lord, who the angel of the Lord ascends in the flame of the burnt sacrifice that they offer, and then they realize that. It's the angel of the Lord. Yes. And they're like, and the dad's like, we're going to die yeah. now. And so, the mom's like, hey, if we were going to die, we would have already died. That's so practical. It's like, okay, come on, think about this. But he really give us instructions if he's going to kill us. Yeah. There's a couple of things there too to prove sure. that like, one, when they're like, what's your name? He goes, my name is beyond understanding. Mm -hmm. This is uh, an indication that this is not just your ordinary angel. Like, yes. Right? This is specifically God. You go to that back to Revelation, back. Fast forward <laughs> to Revelation 19, verse 12. He says he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Mm -hmm. Only he understands it. So long right. story short, this is a reference to uh, the angel of the Lord in, in human form because mm -hmm. he's a man uh, of God. Now, furthermore, when he responds, I know I just recently wrote a Q&A on this about some people. Someone wrote in saying, um, will you die if you see the face of God? Because sometimes it says you will, and then sometimes it doesn't happen, and they're right. kind, of, kind of confused. So if you're interested in that, I'll post it in the link below. It's just an article saying why you can. It's actually a great way to see the Trinity in the uh, Old Testament. But despite that, that's my that's my points there. <laughs> um, the angel of the Lord is an amazing thing that you see It's happening. a really interesting study to do yes. on the angel of the Lord and look up every time the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament and yeah. how... It, it is very different than just a regular angel. Yes. It's very cool. Yeah, very cool. All right. Okay, Judges chapter 14. So continuing on now, Samson is born. Um, and, and through the story of Samson, it's really interesting because we're going to see God achieving deliverance for Israel again through and despite human sinful, sinfulness. So like in the, in the history of Jephthah, it's kind of despite Jephthah's evil, God delivers Israel. Right. What's really interesting with Samson is that God kind of is is orchestrating things so that his will will be done even through human sinfulness. And mm -hmm. you're going to see that happen. So Samson wants to marry a Philistine, which again is against the law of Moses. But mm -hmm. we get a note in the text that this was actually from God because God was looking for an occasion to confront the Philistines. And we're going to learn that Samson only did things when they were personal insults to himself. <laughs> yeah. He didn't really care yeah. that the Philistines were oppressing Israel until it 
affected him. That's right. Personally. So we see God like, all right, this is going to affect you personally now, Samson, because you're you're the one who's going to deliver Israel. All right. So on um, Samson and his parents go to they're they're on their way to the Philistines because they're going to Samson's going to marry this woman. uh, And there's the lion incident, the famous lion incident where Samson kills a lion with his bare hands. And this really shows Samson's strength. But he Samson doesn't tell his parents, um, probably because he didn't want to go through the eight-day ritual of regaining his ritual purity as a Nazarite. <laughs> so he's kind of like, eh, I don't want to be bothered. I'm just not going to tell them <laughs> yeah, that I killed like something. Yeah, right. Right? So then later on, Samson defiles himself and his parents by eating. Um, so he, he goes back to the carcass to kind of see what happened to it. And um, bees have created a, a, a nest. Uh, in the carcass mm. and so he gets he harvests honey from it and he eats some and he gives to him some to his parents which just we see again overall samson not terribly concerned with the ways of god so samson's new philistinian wife ends up betraying him during their marriage festival to save her family because 30 uh, philistine wedding guests have come to her and threatened to kill her family if she she doesn't betray samson so she does. And then in anger, Samson murders 30 other Philistines to get 30 sets of clothes to give those clothes to the guests for guessing his riddle. Yes. So just. There's a very peculiar sense of justice there. Very peculiar yeah. he, sense of justice. He even says, I did to them what they did to me. It's you're like, like he, they they made you, they guessed your riddle? They <laughs> made you lose at your wedding feast? You're yeah. going to kill 30 people? Yeah, either way. But as a result, Samson leaves the 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 wedding without his wife. And so he he just leaves. Right. So she ends up marrying someone else. Right. Because he's gone. But then we're told in Judges chapter 15, Samson eventually goes back for his wife, but finds she's married to someone else. So her father's like, look, she has a younger sister. It's gonna be great. You can marry her. But Samson's insulted. And like we've seen before, nobody insults Samson. So he ends up burning a bunch of agricultural land. Uh, And the Philistines execute Samson's original wife and her father for that crime of burning the agricultural land. So Samson launches an attack on the Philistines and he slaughters many of them, which starts a war. Mm. So this whole personal situation with Samson and and this, this wife uh, well, ex-wife ends up starting a war, which is what God wanted to have. He wanted right. there to be a confrontation. So the Philistines march out in battle against the tribe of Judah specifically because they're looking for Samson. So the men of Judah go to get Samson and they just give him up. Nobody likes this guy. <laughs> Nobody likes this guy. But they wouldn't have been able to take Samson captive unless Samson wanted to be taken captive because right. he was that strong. So he goes willingly so that he can surprise attack the Philistines. He ends up killing a ton of them using a donkey's jawbone that he finds on the side of the road. And he creates a rhyme. In his own honor <laughs> and in greatness. Yeah. Um, he calls out to God for water because he's dying of thirst and God provides water for him. So there's a hill and a spring that's named after this event in Israel. Mm. Uh, and we're told that Samson then became the leader, the judge of Israel for 20 years against the Philistines specifically. Right. 
This story is going to get worse. In chapter 16, Samson goes to Gaza, uh, which is a Philistinian city, and he hires a prostitute. And the people of the city recognize Samson. And so they close the gate because they're going mm-hmm. to ambush him and, and, and take him captive. Right. But Samson miraculously removes the gate with the posts, which is insane, right. and hauls them to Hebron, which is 40 miles away. So just by the, by his own strength, just picks them up and leaves. Like, you're not going to take me captive. <laughs> We're told that Samson falls in love with another Philistinian woman named Delilah, who is in league with the Philistines. Mm. And finally, she gets him, and they're able to bind Samson. Uh, she, takes, she cuts his hair. It takes away his strength. Right. Uh, and they take him to the city of Gaza, where he becomes a working prisoner grinding grain. So this is like the lowest of the low job, mm. uh, what the woman slaves would do. Right. And that's what Samson is doing in prison. So it's a humiliation. Right. Um, they bring him as entertainment to the Temple of Dagon, and Samson ends up causing it to collapse as revenge for his eyes. Because I forgot to say they blind him. They, right, they, they gouge out his eyes. Yeah. Well, and Samson here is the archetypal judge of the judges. Like he is the manifestation of the book of the themes of the book of judges. Right. So much so that like everyone's reading right in their own eyes, mm-hmm. they gouge at his eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's his sense of uh, justice is I will do what they did to me. Yeah. Right. It's like his own his subjective sense of what's right and wrong. Yeah. And then also too, his even in so much as his own he relies all on his own personal strength to do everything, even though it is God like I know he's he acknowledges that oh if you cut my hair, but it's not his hair. God gave him strength and he's God's prom. God's keeping his covenant and his promise through the hair. Yeah, it's the, God. The hair is a sign of it. The hair is a sign of it, yeah. right? So he broke the covenant. Mm-hmm. And then God's like, okay, well, I'm not going to give you the strength, right? So it's nothing to do with necessarily with his hair. It has to do with him not acknowledging God at all. You know, eventually, he he humbles himself. He has to. He's mm-hmm. forced to. He's losing his eyes. So, anyways, he's the archetypal judge of the Book of Judges. That all the themes kind of manifest in there. And what you'll see here then too is. After Judges, after Samson, it shifts from this outward oppression of everyone trying to oppress Israel outwardly to an inward civil conflict. In Judges Judges 17 to 21, an inward civil conflict. So you have here, like, he's the final judge to basically uh, uh, stop the oppression of the Philistines outward. Mm -hmm. But because of their idolatry, there's still problems inward. A lot of problems. A lot of problems. Yeah. Anyway, so that would be be my two cents there. Mm Mm-hmm. No, it, it's really, it's really, really interesting to see uh, the the different issues that each judge pulls up, and every single one of them goes back to right. when you don't know God, when you don't care, like this is going to happen. And we have to remember right. that Israel was a special nation to God; they had already made a covenant with God that God was going to use them to bring salvation, to bless all nations through them. Yeah. So He has a plan of salvation that He's working out. So we're getting to see, okay, what happens when when the people who um, who God is bringing salvation to the world through, what happens when they forget about God? Right. And we're seeing that here. That's right. It's not great. No, it's not sad. Good. All right. So moving then, you're right, into Judges 17, more of the internal struggle. Right. Judges chapter 17 really does show just how bad Israel had become. So we we meet this man named Micah, and he sets up a shrine, a, a, a household shrine with a bunch of idols in it. And then he hires a Levite to move in with his family and become the priest of the shrine. And all of this is in the name of God. 
all of these idols and everything. Mm. So they're worshiping God, but they're worshiping God in name, but everything that they're doing is pagan worship. Right. Now, what's really ironic here is that Micah sees his luck in finding a Levite to be the priest of his idol shrine as a sign that God's blessing him, as a sign that God wants him to do this. So this really tells us that we need to be careful what we attribute to God. Mm. We really need to be careful yeah. what we attribute to God. You know, when we don't know God, when we don't know his ways, when we don't know his word, evil things can seem like God's actions right. and can seem like God's seal of approval right. on the things that we're doing. But in reality, Michael was engaging in idolatry. So we're right. seeing this irony here. Uh, so then moving on to Judges chapter 18, the tribe of Dan, who is still looking for land because they failed to take over their inheritance, they stop at Micah's house and they meet the Levi. So the, the Levite. So they're like, oh, great. Inquire of God for us. And, and we need guidance. So the Levite gives the Danites a favorable message. And the Danites, as a result, steal Micah's shrine all of the idols, and they make a deal with the Levite, and the Levite's excited. He's happy now. He gets to become the high priest of an entire <laughs> tribe, not so just a family. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is awesome. Yeah. Yes. Right? So at the end of the story, there's a bombshell that's revealed. And it's the bombshell is this. The Levite is Moses' grandson. The idolatrous Levite is Moses' grandson. His name was Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. Mm. And his family were, were told were the priests for the tribe of Dan until the Assyrian captivity in 722. So they're going to last throughout all the kings of northern Israel, throughout the reign of David and Solomon, mm. and, and they're going to go on until the Israelite captivity. Interesting. Yeah. So how far Israel had fallen and how far humanity can fall if we ignore the Bible and instead choose to listen to our own circumstances, to our friends, to just our leaders, to our culture. It's so easy. Within a generation, like your so grandkids. Easy. Your yeah. Grandkids, yeah. Moses, Moses, the friend yeah. of God, the man who saw God. Yeah. His grandson is the idolatrous Levite. Yeah. Yikes. Okay. Judges chapter 19. We have a major repeat Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes. Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> I can speak, I think. But this time, instead of it being a city of a plain, it is a city in Israel. Right. It is Gibeah in, in the territory of Benjamin. So we have another Levite who's supposed to be the tribe serving God. And his concubine, now remember, concubine uh, concubine just means not a full legal wife, so a secondary wife right. for whatever reason. But a lot of times, it's like it could have been her financial status, but a lot of times it was for the purpose of bearing more children. Right. It's a pretty normal relationship that we see where for some reason, uh, for some reason, the concubine leaves the Levite. So perhaps he wasn't upholding his part of the marriage agreement. So right. she leaves him and then he follows her and he comes to her house to make amends. And um, in Bethlehem, in the concubine's parents' house, um, the Levite experiences proper, um, actually excessive hospitality. They want him to stay. They want this relationship to work. Mm. Um, as then they move on from Bethlehem, they go to the, the city of Gibeah. 
and uh, a Gibeonite, a man from Gibeah accepts them into their house, shows them hospitality. But then again, just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, we have the men of the city come to that house and they want to rape the Levite. Right. Then the Levite. And that that specifically in the verses 22 to 23, mm-hmm. it's like almost word for word Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. And it, that's on yeah. purpose. Yes. That's to, to, to show you how far Israel had yes. gone. Um. So then the Levite, who up until this point you think is like a decent guy, you yes. know, he's gone to make amends. Um, he ends up shoving his concubine out the door and shutting the door. And she's violently raped and ends up dying of her injuries. Now, for the concubine, everyone who should have offered her protection has failed her. Her father gives her back to the Levite after she's left the Levite for mistreating her. The Levite himself, her so-called husband, has just thrown her out, no protection. And the host who had accepted them into their house, he had an obligation to protect her as well as an extension of the husband. So this is like a this is a triple failure. And yeah. and and this story is showing it. Now, shockingly, instead of giving her a proper burial, the Levite actually cuts her up which is really strange because he's a Levite. So he his role should have been to yeah. chop up sacrifices to God. Right. So he chops her body up and sends pieces of these bodies with messengers to the 12 tribes of Israel to call an assembly, to shock them. Like yeah. a shocking thing has been done in Israel. Yeah. Judges chapter 20, Israel as a result gathers at the city of Mizpah, everyone except for Benjamin because they own Gibeah. Yeah, so right. this is on them. The assembly of Israel gives the tribe of Benjamin the opportunity to allow Israel to destroy the entire city. So just as God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, they want to destroy Gibeah. Benjamin says no, which leads to an all-out civil war where they're trying to annihilate Benjamin Benjamin as a tribe. Right. Um, There's three very brutal battles that are described to defeat Benjamin. But in the third battle, they slaughter most of them. Um, And then they turn and they start going after all of the Benjamite cities. They don't just stop with Gibeah. They're like, okay, let's let's get them all. And we're told that about 600 Benjamites, Benjamite men, end up escaping and hide out at a place called the Rock of Ramon. Right. Then the last chapter in Judges chapter 21, Israel takes a vow that, okay, we didn't kill all of them. So what we're going to do is we're not going to allow any of our daughters to marry a Benjamite so that the tribe eventually will die out. Right. Um, no, uh, but then they, Israel then uh, eventually regrets this decision and they, they're like, okay, what are we going to do? We shouldn't allow the Benjamites to, to die out. And they realized that no one from the city of Jabesh Gilead had come to the assembly. So they hadn't made a vow before God to not give their daughters in marriage to Benjamin. Right. So Israel's great idea is that they're going to kill all the men and married women in Jabesh Gilead and steal the young unmarried women and give them to the Benjamites as wives. So that's what they do. Yeah, it's just rough. But they're a few hundred women short. So they tell the Benjamites to kidnap women from the festival at Shiloh. Yeah. Because a bunch of Israelite women are going to go there for the festival. They're going to be dancing before God because the tent tabernacle is there. So just go steal them. Yeah. 
the chapter ends with, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Yeah, and that is the the core theme of the book, especially we were saying from chapter 17 to chapter 21, when it becomes the inward conflict, it really highlights that in those days there was no king in Israel. It's really pushing. So what it's pushing for is an Mm anti-Benjamin, pro-Judah, anti-judge, pro-king, and then because of Samuel, presumably, writing during the time of Saul and David, anti-Saul. Mm-hmm. Pro David. Mm-hmm. That's what it kind of it's kind of like building up this whole like narrative, mm-hmm. implicitly not explicitly, uh, during the time of Saul and David. Yeah, it's it's this idea that Israel needs a godly leader who's not just not just a military man right. and not just a priest of Israel, but someone who can kind of ride the line between both to correct the evil that's like to have a really good moral compass right. to correct the evil that's going on in the nation, but still be able to protect the nation from outside weaknesses well, that's right. or so, outside enemies. Sorry, so to add, No, you're right. Because to clarify something earlier, Saul's a Benjamite from Gibeah. From Gibeah. Yeah, yeah. from Gibeah. So, so originally the book of Ruth wasn't placed in between Judges and 1 Samuel. So right. Judges and 1 Samuel would have been back to back. Right now we're going to go to Ruth. But then when we jump into 1 Samuel, we're going to meet Saul and we're going to realize that he is a result of this evil. That's right. Yeah. So, but to even tie back what you were saying before about um, their desire a king, like an actual godly king to rule them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we know that later on in 1 Samuel, God's like, you displaced me as king. God's like, you didn't want me as king. Yeah. Now you want a new king. It's not just because they want a king, you know, like David, or a godly king. It's because they want a king like the rest of the world. Yeah. It's but that's, Someone who's going to give right. them power. Someone who's going to give them security. That's right. So God's like, okay, you don't want a king, and I am the king of kings, because that harkens You've back. already rejected me. You don't know my law. That's I, right. I was supposed so, to be your king. There was no king in Israel mm-hmm. is a double entendre. It's a king of Israel, God, yeah. who looks over the king of kings, yeah. looking over a godly king. And now the king, and that's God's point. He's like, now this king, this 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 human king, right. is going to force you into submission. They're going to have taxes. They're going right. to take your, your children as workers in right. the fields and as workers in the palace. They're going to make you go to war. They're going to physically enforce right. it, whereas God wasn't physically enforcing it in, in a human sense. Right. And they would actually, impl- like, they would know that God was supposed to be viewed as a king. Yeah. Even to, in like, the, the structure of the oh, Deuteronomy. Yeah. They, no, they knew for The Hittite sure. vassal treaty. It does not even need to be explicitly said because mm-hmm. it's structured in a way they would understand that God is king and these are vassal kings on earth, essentially. Mm-hmm. Anyways, it's really interesting. It is. Yeah. Okay. We got to speed through yes. some of these chapters. We're running behind. Let's do okay, it. Okay. Ruth. Ruth chapter one. So um, the book of Ruth as a whole ends up being um, a backstory for King David. Yes. It's a backstory of his family. So, And it's a complete contrast to the judges itself. Yes, it is. So this yeah. is in the time period of the judges. We've got the tri- from, uh, we, we see a family from the tribe of Judah, from the city of Bethlehem. Um, the the father's name is Elimelech and the wife's name is Naomi and they have sons and they go to Moab because there's a famine in Israel. So the sons end up marrying Moabite women and then Elimelech, the father, dies and then the sons also die while they're in the land of Moab. So there's Naomi and these two, her two widowed daughter-in-laws and she, the famine's over so Naomi decides to go back to Israel and 
uh, one of the daughters-in-law, Ruth, decides to go with Naomi. But Naomi is faced with a problem. She technically owns Elimelech's land, her husband's land, but she's too old to have a son uh, to carry on the family name and the land. So this land is doomed to be absorbed by another close family member. Ruth Mm. chapter two, uh, Ruth starts working um, as uh, an impoverished woman to provide for Naomi. So she goes and she gleans in a man named Boaz's barley fields. And Boaz recognizes her hard work and he offers protection to her and he treats her well um, because she's treated his Mm. relative's widow well. So Ruth collects an unusually large amount of barley because of Boaz's favor upon her. It actually works out to 30 pounds in a day. That's a lot of barley. Um, Naomi recognizes that Boaz is being very kind. And she, when she finds out that it's Boaz's field, she's like, Boaz is one of our potential kinsmen redeemers, also called guardian redeemers. Now, this is, um, if you want to learn about that, you can go back to Leviticus chapter 25. But basically, it's someone that has an obligation, a close relative that has an obligation to make sure that a family line doesn't die out. Um, this really was an obligation because uh, it brought no personal benefit to the kinsman redeemer. Right. But it, it did bring potential problems with inheritance because what they would do is that they would marry the 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 widow of the relative and have a child with that relative, but that child was not counted as their own. Yes. That child was counted as the, the dead husband's child. Yes. Okay. Ruth chapter three, Ruth asks Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, uh, marry me and provide me a son for Naomi. Um, And Boaz promises to do it if the closer kinsman redeemer, there was an order, the closest relative had the responsibility. If he doesn't want to do it, I'll do it for you. Um, And then Ruth chapter four, that closer relative initially wants to redeem the land. He essentially just wants to buy it from Naomi because he knows she's too old to have a son. This is a sweet deal. I'll just take care of her and I'll buy the land. Uh, But then he realizes Ruth is in the picture and he would actually have to go through with having a child. And he's like, nah, no, 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 no. So, um, it would affect um, his estate. Yeah. So we see this really interesting ceremony, um, where the man gives his sandal to Boaz. And if you want to learn about this ceremony, go back to Deuteronomy chapter five. This is the family of the unsandaled man. Basically, if a man refused to do this duty, it was a really shameful thing. He was leaving a family member out in the cold. But in this case, he was just abdicating it to someone else. So it wouldn't have been as shameful because there was still someone to redeem them. And he's essentially not leaving Naomi to poverty. He's just passing her off to the next relative. So Ruth does have a son. His name is Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of King David. And that here, too, the contrast between um, the kinsman redeemers. Uh The first one denies it Mm -hmm. based on his estate and material, material, whether it's wealth or material goods, whatever, passing those on. Mm -hmm. So he's like, on account of my estate, I don't really want to affect my estate. Mm -hmm. Whereas Boaz specifically says, I will do not basically, I'm just paraphrasing, I don't want his name to disappear among his family and hometown. In other words, Boaz prioritizes the remembrance. Mm-hmm. The other one prioritizes the estate. Yeah. That is a huge difference huge. in what you value, mm-hmm. people or property, mm-hmm. right? So um, I think that's important. And actually, and there's so many rich themes in this short oh, story. Yeah. Uh, I'll just go over a couple. One, God's sovereign activity is ongoing but hidden in plain sight. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he plays a cosmic role in rewarding the poor in spirit, showing mercy and compassion, as you see the kinsman redeemer. Mm-hmm. Uh, God's loving kindness over all people, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, or race. The foreigners, right? Mm-hmm. That's his love for them. So it's pro-foreigner. I'm sure it was is. a dispute with uh, David. Who You can very easily yeah. see people in Bethlehem being like, well, did you know King David's great-grandmother was a Moabite? <laughs> yeah. And we're not supposed to That's marry right. Moabites? So then you could see then him going back in history and being like, all right, Samuel, you need to, right. or someone, you need to write the history of my family so people know. That's right. But it wasn't the first time and it wasn't going to be the last where God did accept right. um, uh, foreign people into the people of Israel based off of their covenant with God. Right. Mm-hmm. And the last theme I would be the love between people who are non-blood related. Yes. That's a big thing. So there's your love of God, excuse me, love of God, and then love of neighbor. Yeah. Like you see those themes perfectly in Ruth. And the book's, the book's even read during the week of the Pentecost, mm-hmm. the week of feet, which just has to do with redemption and all this stuff. So it's really cool. It's very cool. Okay, we got a boogie through First oh, Samuel. Boogie. So we're going to First Samuel chapter 12. Uh, uh, okay, so First Samuel chapter 1. Uh, so we learn about this couple, Hannah and Elkanah. And Elkanah living in Ephraim, even though they are Levites. We learn that they're Levites in First Chronicle chapter 6. We learn that Hannah is barren, and when they go to the Tent Tabernacle at Shiloh, she begs God to give her a son. She wants to dedicate this son back to God's service to be a Nazarite. That happens, and when um, the child is weaned, so probably around three or four years old, she brings him to Shiloh, and he lives with the priests at the tent tabernacle. First Samuel chapter two is records Hannah's prayer of praise to God. The end of the chapter records how the high priest who is named Eli, his sons were evil. Eli was not evil, but his sons were evil. There's a prophecy from God against Eli's sons and against Eli as well. The the charge that God gives to Eli is you honor your evil sons more than you honor me. So in other words, Eli wasn't correcting his sons, even though he knew of their evil. First Samuel chapter three, God calls Samuel as a young boy. Um, and we learn uh, in verse one of chapter three that it says, in those days, the word of God, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. This is going to change. Samuel, the man Samuel, marks a major transition in the life of Israel. So before him, no one really knows the word of God. There's no visions. After him, there's a a vibrant teaching of the word of God and lots of prophets in Israel. Yeah. No, I was going to say, too, I know in verse 35 of chapter 2, I know you're in chapter 3 now. (laughs) I know. I'm uh, moving. And you're moving fast. There's something really interesting here where it says, uh, when the Lord's talking to Samuel, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. Mm-hmm. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. What's interesting about that is you will minister before my Messiah. And the really word is yeah. really interesting in Hebrew, that mm-hmm. word's Messiah. So it's like you're, the priests are in front of Messiah always. That means the presence of the Lord is Messiah. That's what that means. Mm-hmm. So you have this. God is Messiah right here in 1 Samuel, already present. Anyways, I just want to throw that in there. I know we're kind of going back, but that no, ties into what you're talking about here with uh, building up a kingdom of, of priests. Go ahead. So in the end of 1 Samuel chapter 3, we learn that Samuel grows up as a priest prophet. 
So he's a priest, but he's also a prophet. He hears the word of God and he delivers messages to people. Uh, Chapter four, the Philistines who are still oppressing Israel end up capturing the Ark of the Covenant in battle. Eli's two sons are killed in battle. And when Eli hears that his sons have died in battle and specifically that the Ark has been captured, he falls backwards off his chair, which was probably a platform that was built like out of stone into the entrance of the tabernacle complex at Shiloh. Long story, but it would have been higher off the ground than just like a regular Mm -hmm. chair. So he falls off it and he dies because he was very old when he fell off. And we're told that he had led Israel for 40 years. Chapter five, the Ark of the Covenant causes physical health problems and plagues for the Philistine people. uh, And they pass it around their cities to see if other cities will have any luck. And when they don't, they send it back to Israel. First Samuel chapter six, uh, after seven months of being under Philistinian control, the ark is sent back on an undriven cart. So that means there was no driver. The cart was just being pulled by oxen and the Philistines had put five golden rats and five golden tumors on the cart, uh, one for each Philistine ruler. It's their way of making amends Mm -hmm. to God saying sorry. And then again, we get this demonstration of how far Israelite was gone in terms of religious observances because the ark goes back to Beth Shemesh and Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city. So the Kohathites who lived here, according to Joshua chapter 21, they were actually tasked with taking care of the Ark of the Covenant. So if anyone should have known how to take care of the Ark of the Covenant, it should have been them, (laughs) which is probably why God had the oxen bring the Ark of the Covenant to to their city, to Beth Shemesh, except they break all the rules. Instead of covering the Ark of the Covenant, they put it up on display and they have this big festival and uh, they, they actually open it up and look in the Ark of the Covenant, which only the high priest the only the Aaronic priesthood was ever supposed to touch the ark. And so um, a play, uh, God struck down some of them. We're not exactly sure how, but some of them died. But then rather than mourning and inquiring of God, like, why did this happen? Why is this going on? Like Moses or Joshua, you know, would have done. Uh, they decide they don't want the ark in the, anymore. And so they just send it off to Kiriath Jerim. Chapter 7, Samuel rallies Israel to get rid of their idols so that God will help them rid themselves of the Philistines. So there's this rid, rid, rid yourself of the idols. God will rid you of the Philistines. Uh, And Samuel begins acting as the judge of Israel. He goes on a circuit between the cities of Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and his home in Ramah. So he does that on a yearly basis or even perhaps more. Mm. Chapter eight, Israel asks for a king and God says, Okay. <laughs> First Samuel chapter nine, we meet Saul. Right. Again, this very unlikely choice for a king. And when Samuel approaches him, he asks, uh, Saul goes, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Like, he's like confused because as we talked about, Benjamin had like zero approval rating among Israel. Zero. (laughs) This was really bad. The the last few chapters of Judges, it was really bad. They were compared to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's right. So, And they're not that far away from that incident. So Saul was a result of what he was either a a direct result of one of those weird marriages or a secondary, like a a second gen. So when it says least and humble, it's really referring to 
resources, social status, power. Like it's referring to those yeah, things. Yeah, it's not it's, like he's being like false false how he's not like oh no 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 not yeah. me Who how am could I? I? Yeah. he's literally going this is not gonna work no <laughs> yeah. one's going to follow me yeah that's right <laughs> no one's gonna very do practical it. actually very practical okay so then in first samuel chapter 10 samuel as the prophet and judge of israel anoints saul and he gives him a series of signs that are going to happen to him and then they do this series of signs comes true so Saul knows, like, okay, this is going to happen. This is a real prophet mm-hmm. of God. So Samuel summons all of Israel to Mizpah to publicly anoint Saul king. And there's this really interesting ritual that so far has only been used in judgment against Israel, which is a sign that this kingship of Saul is probably not going to go the best. Mm. Because this ritual literally has only been used to bring judgment on right. Israel before. Do you remember Achan? Back right. in the book of Joshua, yes. where Achan stole things yes. from Jericho. Uh, and so he God has the people of Israel so line up. Right. And um God God by by lots he calls forward a tribe, then by lots he calls forward a clan, then by lots a family, right. then by family a man. Right. And it's that man who was guilty, Achan. Yes. He does the exact same thing, except now it's this man will be your king. Oh, that's so interesting. I know. It's so I know. <laughs> cool. It's so cool because it's God God is anointing Samuel, but in a sense, there is a form of judgment. That's that right. Is, that is with this. Okay. First Samuel chapter 11. So, oh, oh wait, wait. Uh, 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 just tie, tie in there. I know we have like zero time. I know, zero. But I know. So. The form of judgment here is because they've, they've made a new idol. Mm-hmm. They made the king, this new king who's supposed to be like the world, a new idol, yeah. like Achan did. That's so interesting that, he, that God would do that. And then they, and then Samuel's like, oh, like, I, anyway, sorry. It, okay, and so so part of part of Israel accepts Saul, and there are there are some the um, it's funny because Samuel's writing Samuel right. He calls them scoundrels. <laughs> There's some scoundrels who don't <laughs> accept Saul as king. That is corrected in 1 Samuel chapter 11 when Saul ends up saving Jabesh Gilead. And this is kind of awkward because do you remember Jabesh Gilead from the last few chapters of Judges? They were the city that the Israelites slaughtered everyone and saved only the young unmarried women as wives for the Benjamites. Yeah. So Saul has history, complicated history yeah. with the city of Jabesh Gilead. So them. So. Um, Saul needs to save Jabesh Gilead uh, as a sign that he can be this leader of Israel. So what he does is, again, reflecting back to that event, he cuts up a pair of oxen and sends pieces of them to all the tribes of Israel to call them together. So there's this like major backshadowing. Where yes. he's like, remember this? We're doing this, but we're making it right kind, right. Of, kind of thing. So Saul succeeds in gathering the tribes of Israel together and rescuing Jabesh Gilead from the enemies of Israel. Uh, And the result of that is that everyone in Israel then is like, yep, we'll confirm you by king. You are now our king. Last chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is Samuel's farewell speech. He's saying goodbye as the leader, as the judge of Israel. He's stepping down. You now have a new leader, the king of Israel. Um, And Samuel 
says that he is now going to move strictly into a teaching role as the priest of Israel. He is going to teach the ways of God. So it's not like we've heard the last of Samuel. Right. He's just no longer the leader of Israel. He's the right. teacher of Israel. Cool. And that's that. And yeah, that's good. I know. Anything I th- else? No, well, since we're done, it's like we can talk a little bit more. I know it's oh, eats up to time. We're way over time. We're way over time. Okay. So in <laughs> chapter 12, though, there's an interesting comparison that's made. Sure. Um, Like, Saul rallies the troops like a war hero here. Mm-hmm. Like, you will fear Samuel and Saul, right? Uh, and so he, was, he says specifically, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Right? So he's like, and everyone's like, wow. He's using that power. The, the terror of the people, fell, the terror of the Lord fell on the people, yeah. and they came out together as one. So he's like bringing people together in this war hero way. But what's interesting is just a couple chapters later is that, the same thing happens, but kind of in a reverse order. See, Saul's prioritizing his kingship and Samuel as opposed to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so what you have here is then um, later on, let me see if I can find it. Uh, and then Samuel talks about in verses 17 to 18, uh, is it now? Is it now? Is it not the wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and the same day the Lord said, Thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and Samuel. This is contrasted, right? They got a king, Samuel, Saul and Samuel. And then Samuel was like, No, it's the Lord. Mm-hmm. And then, right? But then they were also afraid of Samuel. Anyways, interesting contrast that's being had there. Um, and a lot to explore, and I think we've run out of time here. <laughs> we um, have. But yeah. now we're moving. So for next week, we're moving into a really interesting time period where there is that political military leader, but there's still the priest and prophet yeah. of Samuel. So now there's two people who can potentially work together as a team to make things a lot better for the people of Israel in right. terms of their spirituality and their physical life. Right. So this is the idea. There's now hope on the horizon between can these people work together right. and follow God. That's awesome. Finally. We'll see. I hope you enjoy your reading this week. Leave us comments and questions down below and we'll get back to you. We love reading them. Um, and let us know how you're in, how you enjoyed Judges, Ruth, and First Samuel. It's can be a can be a tricky read and a brutal read, but really interesting things in there. Have a good week, guys. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.